0: Check, check. Okay. This is Peter Hayden in cloudy South Florida. We are outside of the Holiday Inn.
2: When you land in West Palm Beach, you see about what you'd expect from a large city in South Florida palm trees, firebush, seagulls, and lots of people wearing shorts and flip flops, even in February.
0: Miss Celeste Headley, I presume. No, nice to meet you. Uh, welcome to cloudy South Florida. <laughs>
2: I've come here from my home in Maryland, and I'm meeting up with a local reporter, Peter Hayden. But the scene changes dramatically when you cross from one side of Lake Worth Lagoon to the other.
0: So the bridge is down, and we are now crossing officially. Welcome to
2: Palm Beach Beach Island. Island.
3: Yeah.
2: When your car tires hit the pavement on the island, you almost expect to hear canned laughter or maybe some audience applause. Everything is so staged, so perfect. You could be on the set of a sitcom, a very expensive sitcom. I mean, in some places, even the palm trees that grow kind of bended naturally are all miraculously standing up straight, like they've grown them with a scoliosis brace on. They're that manicured. Palm Beach Island is a super exclusive area, the kind of place where there's only one gas station And they don't advertise the price of gas.
0: There's the only gas station on the island of Palm Beach, the Sunoco Station, and they never put the price of the gas
2: out there. Because, well, if you've got to ask, you can't afford it. And it's not just secret prices, it's also a history of unspoken restrictive rules. There were never signs posted saying white Christians only, but we pass by an elite club that never in its history welcomed a black or Jewish member. I'm doubly out. I'm black and Jewish, so I'm really excluded. (laughs) And to really drive home the point, this strip of houses is called Billionaire's Row. But we're not aimlessly driving around. We're on a mission. We want to take a look at Alfie Fonhol's house. First, from across the intercoastal waterway.
0: Yeah, dead in front of us, across the water, I believe that's Alfie Fonhol's house. Yeah,
2: so we're looking at Alfie's house. And it's... Huge. I mean, it looks like a hotel. That's a big house. It's a vision of graceful arches and white brick atop a carefully manicured lawn, surrounded by palm trees and thick hedges. If you stand on your toes and look carefully, you can just make out the large swimming pool, a placid expanse of cerulean water cut out of bright white ceramic tile. It's a 9,000-square-foot mansion with six bedrooms and a deep-water dock. According to public records, it's valued at around $24 million. As a very much non-billionaire just checking things out from the street, I couldn't get a good look at Alfie or Pepe's houses. But one thing I could see very clearly from the path that runs along the jetty outside Alfie's house was a yacht— Alfie's $23 million, 157-foot yacht, Krilly. This is the yacht. And it's massive. It looks like a, a, a battleship, right?
0: It does look like a battleship. The bow of it looks like a battleship or an ice cutter.
2: <laughs> and if you see the people working on it, like they're like little ants. It's difficult to come up with an apt metaphor for just how massive this boat is. If it were a strip mall, it could comfortably house five stores. You work on the crew, Lee? Mm-hmm. A crew member walked by us and confirmed the yacht is 157 feet and sleeps more than 20 people.
4: Uh, it's like around 20, 25.
2: Like, that's how many people live in whole apartment buildings. I made the point it's bigger than my house, which he thought was pretty funny. <laughs> but the wealth of the Van Hools is serious. Together, the brothers are worth around $8.2 billion more than the gross domestic product of 67 nations. So when we left Pepe and his brother Alfie Fonjul in the last episode, they had just fled Cuba and were freshly landed in Florida with their family's historic sugar empire in tatters. So how did they go from
3: there? The mansions were gone, the assets were gone. To this. This is a massive boat, massive. I don't even know if you say boat, craft.
2: How they can now afford a yacht that measures half the length of a football field has a lot to do with their nickname.
3: The first family of corporate welfare.
2: The dollars that paid for Alfie's super yacht? They may have come from your pocket.
5: And that is strictly uh, due to the unwitting generosity of uh, federal taxpayers.
2: The backdrop to their journey to riches and how these Cuban brothers ended up at the center of a multi-million dollar lawsuit is winding, complicated, and fascinating. It includes everything from the FBI to the Godfather. I'm Celeste Headley, and from iHeartMedia, Imagine Audio, and the teams at Weekday Fun and Novel, this is Big Sugar, Episode 5, The American Dream. You might be wondering why you're not hearing from Alfie and Pepe themselves in this series. Well, look, we've been trying.
5: Hi, this is um, Saskia,
4: the podcast producer calling again.
2: And I mean, really trying.
4: My name's Nadia. I'm a reporter who's been leaving Gaston some voicemails
3: recently. Thank you
1: for calling United States Sugar Corporation. To dial by name, press Thank 1. Thank calling
3: Sugarcane Growers Cooperative of Florida. Our office hours are 8 a.m. to 12 p.m. If this is an
1: emergency, please hang up and dial 911.
2: We've tried to call the major sugar companies, their lawyers, and their Florida trade group to offer them a chance to tell their side of the story, to do an interview. We want to talk to them about the allegations of how their workers are treated and paid. And we also want to talk to the Fonhul brothers about their lives. But it was hard to get very far. Let's just say the production team spent a lot of time being shuffled from media rep to voicemail to assistant, bopping along to this tune. One representative of U.S. Sugar even said podcasts weren't on her radar because she has a job, a family, and a life. It became very clear that no one from U.S. Sugar, Florida Crystals, or any of the other companies wanted to talk to us. So what other option did we have? My producer, Saskia.
3: I I don't think we have another option other than going to Florida and trying to find them ourselves. Agreed.
2: I wasn't just in Palm Beach to admire mansions and super yachts. I was there to try to find the Hool's on their home turf. I mean, it's unlikely that they'll talk to us. I get that. But unlikely doesn't mean not possible. (laughs) So the local reporter Peter and I jump in the car and head to the headquarters of Florida Crystals. So the
0: first place that we are to go uh, is to Florida Crystals headquarters. Alfie's office?
2: Yes. Yeah, okay. The building is a light peach cement block with wheat colored trim, and it has a somewhat elaborate entrance a checkerboard of caramel and cream diamonds with carved columns facing a huge banyan tree at the center of a quaint brick traffic circle. Like the holes themselves, the Florida Crystal HQ is protected and comfortable. Check, check. Okay,
0: I'm going to roll on this. Before we get out, I guess, let's talk about what we're about to do.
2: I mean, our hope is that we can at least get onto their floor, right? I mean, we'll go to the security desk, see what that's... What the deal is, we can be as charming as we can be. (laughs) Are you not charming, Peter? I am charming,
0: and (laughs) I I love to smile. I'm always smiling.
2: We will turn on the charm. There are employees heading into work with lunches and laptops as we exit the parking structure and walk the short distance to the front doors, letter in hand. We're hoping to speak with Alfie. Of
0: Florida Crystals.
2: The security guard is friendly, but really has no intention of letting us get more than a few feet inside the building. They don't ever let anybody through. Instead, she tells us we could leave the letter with her, and she'll add it to the stack of mail for Florida Crystal staff to collect later in the day. So they'll have a runner that'll come down to collect things for them, and um, you can include this with them. Do you know when that person might deliver these letters? So apparently, that letter asking for an interview was to be delivered to Alfie and Pepe that day. And we also put one letter in Alfie's mailbox, just to be sure. We're going to stick it in the mailbox here. That's a sturdy mailbox. It was pretty frustrating, if I'm being honest, how impenetrable the barriers that the Hools had cocooning them are, whether they're cameras, security guards, or hedges. Driving away, I kept thinking about it. When you have enough money, you literally can build enough barriers between yourself and the outside world that you never have to be confronted, if you don't want to. You never have to be questioned. I mean, it, it obviously is quite expensive to do so, but if you have enough money, you can isolate yourself from pushback. I find that the only time when a corporation will feel they need to reply to a story they do not want to talk about is when they think it's going to look worse for them to have not said something than to have said something, right? Otherwise, they'll issue a very carefully worded statement. But if they can get away with not doing that, then they absolutely will. The Fonhuls didn't seem to have any interest in speaking with us or telling their side of the story. But then Peter and I took a short drive to Belle Glade, Sugar Country, the town an hour away from where the Fonhuls live. The streets in Belgrade Glade are a stark contrast to Billionaire's Row. Some of these homes that we're passing by right now, there's, they're so dilapidated. There's plants growing in the living room of that one.
0: Some are abandoned and yeah. vacant, and some are not, but but right on the edge.
2: Uh... Around this area is where many of the Fonhuls farms are located, while there, we did find people who were willing to talk with us. We came across a group of people relaxing behind a local market. Oh, there's some people up here. Do you want to try to talk to them? Yeah, 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 yeah. There's a couple metal tables and a collection of various chairs beneath a tree and a smoldering fire inside a steel can nearby. They're chatting casually.
0: majority of these people that you see around here with family members and themselves have, have worked for the um, sugar cane industry. Well, the toughness actually bring us together. This would make us strong. This would make this what make us connect.
2: Another guy we spoke to, Michael, seemed to be in his forties. Maybe he didn't want to give us too many personal details, but he says he's never worked in the fields. At first, he was pretty reluctant to talk about the growers, the people like the Funhools, whose businesses, the sugarcane farms, represent the biggest industry in town. Pretty much the only industry. But then it started pouring out. His feelings about the inequity, the difference between his life and theirs.
0: It's good for them. It's not good for us, because we are the one at the fucking bottom. We are the ones that's struggling to keep their pockets fat. We the one who fucking trying to make ends meet. Look at the town. You see the town speak for itself. Now you go where they, where they stay at. You go where they stay, and you see the big difference. Yeah, it's good for them, but it ain't good for us.
2: I saw the 157-foot yacht yesterday.
0: (laughs) We ain't got a goddamn (laughs) rowboat.
2: It's kind of cinematic to imagine when the sugar princes, Pepe and Alfie Fanjul, first arrived in Florida in the 1950s as young men. Well, Pepe was still a teenager, actually. The Cuban Revolution had just concluded. Fidel Castro was prime minister, and their families lost everything. Generations of immense wealth, more than 100,000 acres of land, 10 sugar mills, all now taken by the new communist government and nationalized. Castro is even living in one of their seized houses. Picture him tucked up in Alfie's old bed. Their fortune is in ruins. Well, kind of.
3: They had a lot more money in America than a lot of other Cuban refugees did.
2: Marie Brenner, who interviewed the Fonhol brothers for Vanity Fair. But still, you can imagine them disembarking from the 1950s airplane a couple of suitcases in hand with the instruction from their grandfather echoing in their minds.
3: The grandfather had said to them, you have an imperative to build up this business again. So
2: Alfie's able to secure a 4,000-acre parcel of land in one of the most fertile parts of Florida, the Everglades Agricultural Area. Then he enlists a couple of partners, buys three dilapidated sugar mills from Louisiana for $165,000, and has them dismantled and taken by barge to Florida.
3: So now it is 1959, and the sugar industry in Florida was relatively small. But there was new types of sugar cane and improved fertilizer that were being developed that was soon going to change all of that.
2: Not to mention that the U.S. wasn't buying sugar from Cuba anymore. The U.S. doesn't typically buddy up with communist regimes. So there was a gap in the market for domestic producers. And the brothers get to work on their new farm. This part really sings in the rags-to-riches yarn Alfie told Marie Brenner.
3: So young Alfie Fonhul sets up in a small office in a deserted schoolhouse, downwind from the plant. He said, the smell and the dust blowing in for months on me was horrendous.
2: But after a year of struggle, it paid off all that grit.
3: Their first crop came in 1961, it brought in a million dollars, which was astonishing.
2: They were making good on their commitment to their grandfather. But the good times didn't last.
3: In the second year, the Everglades flooded and they lost everything and then some.
2: They were down on their luck, again. After two years of work, the brothers were back to square one, or even a little worse off than when they arrived. So what turned things around? Well, it wasn't just an improved fertilizer or a better year of weather conditions. In fact, what made all the difference happened very far away from a sugarcane field. It happened in the hallowed halls of the United States government. More coming up after the break. One of the secret ingredients in the Fonhul's recipe for riches is something known as the farm bill. Now, the farm bill might sound like one of the least sexy, most dry pieces of legislation in this country. If the Affordable Care Act is the sexy stiletto of the law, the farm bill is the size 14 crock. And buried in the farm bill is the sugar program, which is probably how it flies under the radar. The general public doesn't pay much attention to it. The whole thing only comes up for renewal every five years. But it's important, and a lot of our country's dollars are at stake. So like a desperate Lothario, I'm going to cue up some mood music and attempt to make this as sexy as possible. In 1974, a price spike drove the sugar industry into overproduction, and the bottom fell out of the market. That meant a bunch of sugarcane farmers were on the brink of losing everything. So the government rushed in with guaranteed loans and financing, which became the basis of the current sugar program, which again is part of the massive farm bill. Today, what it means is, first, there are strict import quotas, very little sugar grown outside the U.S. is sold here, and... It also means there's a guaranteed price floor for sugar, which the government will pay for any surplus produced.
5: So they're basically guaranteed a price per pound, which is uh, quite a good deal.
2: This is Carl Hyacin, writer and journalist and all-around Florida legend.
5: If anyone has their own business, they can appreciate how lovely it would be if the government said to them, no matter what the world market is for what you're selling, you're going to get this much for it because we're going to make sure you do. Um, So they've had the benefit of these massive entitlement programs. In
2: 2021, the average price for cane sugar in the world market was $21.40 per pound. In the U.S., the price was $47.59. That's more than twice the price. And who foots the bill for this difference? If you're in the U.S., you and me. Every time you buy anything with sugar in it, from bread to salad dressing you pay more. The sugar program as a whole costs the U.S. consumer up to $4 billion a year, and the Fonhul's companies personally benefit to the tune of tens of millions. Here's a clip from a doc focused on that.
3: Critics estimate these plantation owners make an extra $65 million a year of the sugar program in American consumers.
5: The Fonhul family makes hundreds of millions of dollars become very wealthy because of a government program. And there's no reason why the federal government should create a program to make the Fonhuls richer. We're, in effect, subsidizing the Fonhuls and hurting the American public buying products that have sugar in it.
2: But hey, if you're talking to the Fonhuls, don't call it a subsidy. It's
5: not direct subsidy. They get very prickly when you talk to them about the... Whether it's a subsidy or not, it's a massive in, in corporate entitlement.
3: They don't see what they're getting as anything less than they deserve. And they have an elaborate way of saying that this is not a subsidy, that sugar is the lifeblood of America, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera.
2: How do they keep these benefits? Well, they pay for them. We'll dig into this more in the series— but the sugar industry is known for its intense lobbying and donating millions to politicians. But the bottom line is, it was the Farm Bill legislation that helped to catapult the young, ambitious Van Hool's to the position they're in now.
5: They live in Palm Beach. They live the lives of multimillionaires. And that is strictly due to the unwitting generosity of federal taxpayers.
2: It's not hard to find evidence of their minted lifestyles. As we both know well, the Van Hools are not obsessed with talking to journalists. But in one rare media appearance, Pepe Van Hool was featured in a BBC documentary about the prestigious Claridge's Hotel, a place where everyone from Queen Victoria to Winston Churchill has stayed.
1: Claridge's Hotel, in the heart of London's Mayfair, provides a five-star service for the rich, where nothing is too much trouble. One such guest is Cuban-born multimillionaire Pepe Van Hool. He's been staying at the hotel for over 62 years since he was a small boy.
2: Mr. Van Hool, welcome,
4: Thank welcome back. Very much. Thank, Thank you. Good to see you.
1: See you again. Mr. Van
4: Hool, how are you? Hi there. You
1: very much. Nice to welcome you back.
2: According to the documentary, he's racked up over 300 nights at Claridges over the course of 10 years. And his favorite room has a price tag of three thousand five hundred pounds a night. That translates to more than one point three million dollars spent at one hotel over a decade. He's so loyal, the staff make sure his room is exactly the same every time he stays. They even compare it to photos. But according to Pepe, Claridge's is quite quaint. Apparently, I think
5: that you may find hotels that are grander. Than the Ritz in Paris, maybe. Or the Ritz of Madrid, has a wonderful outside area to have lunch, which is beautiful. But I think what the clarity is, is the people that come here always, they treat them as family. Let me just say this, there's no way they would be, uh, at least the whose would be living that lifestyle if it weren't for the generosity of, of the of federal government and American consumers who are paying a much higher price for sugar.
2: They have this nickname. They're called the First Family of Corporate Welfare. Yeah. (laughs) Remember former presidential candidate John McCain? Even he used this nickname to talk about the Fonhuls.
3: The First Family of Corporate Welfare.
2: All right, here I'm going to mention something that you probably didn't expect in this story. The Godfather. If you're a film buff, you might already know this, but a major driver behind the production of this movie was an Austrian man called Charles Bluthorn. I want to introduce you to Bluthorn because he's pivotal to how the Funholes became America's most infamous sugar barons. In 1942, he migrated to the U.S. as a wartime refugee and quickly went from struggling doorman to ruthless conglomerate. Charles Bluthorn started Gulf and Western Industries, Initially, he got into the car parts business, and then musical instruments, defense contracting, then baking, even supermarkets. With all the buying and selling, Gulf and Western's revenues increased more than tenfold in less than a decade. Bluthorn's passionate and frenetic business style earned him the moniker, the mad Austrian of Wall Street. Then in 1966, Bluthorn acquired Paramount Pictures. He oversaw and meddled in the production of hit movies like Rosemary's Baby, Saturday Night Fever, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and of course, The Godfather. But while he was making Hollywood history, Bluthorn was known for having a much more intense interest in one of his investments, sugar, of course. His favorite venture was South Puerto Rico Sugar, a company which controlled 90,000 acres of sugar property in South Florida and 240,000 acres in the Dominican Republic.
3: I, at that time in my career, started as a young story editor at Paramount Pictures when Bluthorn still had Florida sugar. And there was sugar posters, there were sugar things that were sold in the lobby at the newsstand. He was obsessed with sugar.
2: But in 1983, Charles Bluthorn suddenly died of a heart attack. And the new owner of Gulf and Western, Martin Davis, was not so obsessed. He decided to unload Bluthorn's sugar holdings. And there was one burgeoning sugar magnet who was primed and ready to take it all. In 1985, a young Alfie von Huhl walked into Martin Davis's office and started negotiating to buy the South Puerto Rico Sugar Company. And Marty?
3: He essentially gave it away for a very reduced price, which became the basis of Florida Crystals.
2: It was this purchase that turned Alfie and Pepe into some of the biggest sugar producers in the country.
1: You don't need to wonder about your food, where it comes from or how it's made, because we do. For Florida Crystals, farm to table isn't a slogan. It's our promise to you. That
2: it These days, Florida Crystals owns about 190,000 acres of sugarcane in Florida and more than 200,000 acres in the Dominican Republic. There, the Fanjuls are also jefes of Casa de Campo, a luxury hotel frequented by Beyonce, Bieber, and the Clintons. Their brands, which might be a bit more familiar to me and you, include Domino, c and Tate & Lyle, and Redpath. And in recent years, the Fanjuls company has expanded its real estate holdings, and they now operate the country's largest biomass power plant, producing electricity from their own sugarcane waste. Alfie and Pepe are worth Billions, And then there's a new generation of Fonjol sugar princes born in America. For example, Pepe's son, Jose Fonjol Jr., he's the executive vice president of Florida Crystals. In a profile in the Florida 500, he's quoted as saying he's currently reading a book by the billionaire Ken Langone entitled, I kid you not, I love capitalism! Exclamation point. So by the 1970s and 80s, the Fonhol brothers have their sugar farms and mills and their Not subsidies, but who's cutting all the sugarcane? This question is really at the heart of our series. More after the break. How did thousands of Jamaicans and men from other Caribbean countries wind up in this very specific and punishing job? It seems a little random, but it's actually not. It follows a pattern, a grim motif, that's haunted the sugarcane industry since it began. To tell that story, we need to wind back even further, to before either Pepe or Alfie had landed in the U.S., 1942. A report has just been slapped on the desk of J. Edgar Hoover, the first director of the FBI. This report is an investigation into working conditions in the sugar industry. So... Why was the FBI investigating, and what did they discover? A few years earlier, in the 1930s, ads had started appearing in newspapers in Mississippi, Arkansas, Tennessee, and Alabama, saying things like, enjoy Florida sunshine during the winter months, and good wages, good living conditions, free transportation and meals to Florida, cash issued daily. They were advertising jobs cutting sugarcane, and they were specifically aimed at Black Americans. The promise of good wages must have been tempting to Black men who earned, on average, about $33 a week in 1936.
3: Cane harvest
5: is a social institution. Thousands of housemaids and cooks beg leave from town and city employers and respond to the hereditary urge to go back to the plantation and work at make and grind
2: In the first half of the 20th century, it was common to hear things like this, that black Americans loved doing menial labor, or that forcing them to work in fields and kitchens was beneficial for them. It's a particularly vicious racist propaganda meant to justify abuse. One city in South Carolina passed an ordinance that required Black men to work no less than five days a week, even if they didn't need the money. But the ads touting Florida's warm weather were aimed at those who struggled to find good-paying jobs. People would respond to the ads thinking they were about to embark on a rewarding career with U.S. Sugar, the biggest sugar company in Florida at the time. But when they'd get to the farms, they'd find that the transport and accommodation, the barracks where they were all packed in, weren't free at all. They were almost immediately in debt to U.S. sugar and had to work to pay it off. In other words, debt slavery. Plus, the work was so much harder than they'd been told or could even have imagined. And that's why the FBI began looking into this. There were accusations of mistreatment and modern-day slavery. And that report Hoover was reading describes a working day which starts before dawn and lasts until dusk. The superintendents and possibly some of the foremen are armed with pistols and blackjacks. The food furnished to the men is not of the best, and they are charged five cents a gallon for fresh water.
4: Testing, testing. One, two, three, testing, testing.
2: Khalil Gibran Mohammed is the Ford Foundation professor of history, race, and public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. He studied the report in detail.
4: One witness who was subjected to these conditions said it, it was worse than being in the penitentiary.
2: Because if they tried to escape the grueling work on the sugarcane farms, well, testimony from one worker says, I knew if you run away, they come didn't get you and chained you to the bed at night. I saw people locked to the beds. I didn't only see that, I saw some men get a beating.
4: And if they managed to make it on to some of the trains that ran through uh, the parts of the state where this work was happening, they'd be chased down and shot at or in some cases killed.
2: The FBI report concludes, there is a dispute as to whether or not the men are locked in the barracks at night, whether the camps are guarded by armed men, and whether the men are free to leave the employee of the company. There doesn't seem to be any dispute as to the fact that those men who have attempted to escape from the plantations are picked up on the highway or shot at while trying to hitch rides on the sugar trains, are returned to the plantations and forced to work.
4: And so the kinds of violence that is associated with sugar slavery from earlier time periods, according to uh, witness testimony in the uh, federal investigation, looked a whole lot similar.
2: In other words, what was happening on sugar farms in the 1940s paralleled what happened in the sugar industry in North America, the U.S. and the Caribbean during the days of chattel slavery from the 16th century until the 19th century. There are few words that can express the cruelty of slavery. And in sugarcane, this barbarity seems to be especially extreme. Once an enslaved person arrived on a cane field, in many cases, they'd be dead within seven years. That's because of the risk of injury, the lack of health care, the intensity of the work, and the weather.
4: So you're coupling extreme tropical conditions with extreme works. And so it is literally sun up to sundown. There is no break. There is no relief. There was constant danger of people being hurt in the process, uh, losing limbs, getting infection uh, from being cut in untreated wounds.
2: It was relentless.
4: Unless they nearly dropped dead, they were expected to work.
2: Even after the life-threatening job of cutting the cane was over, then came the milling taking the stalks to be squished into the liquid that becomes sugar granules. A warning, this part is particularly graphic.
4: People were subjected to losing limbs uh, and occasionally loss of life because their uh, body parts might get caught in, in the grinding rollers. Cane knives were placed alongside the grinding machine for the purposes of cutting limbs from people's bodies, hands and arms were the most common parts of the body to get caught in the grinders uh, in an effort to save uh, enslaved laborers' life, not out of altruism, but because it was an investment in in the worker power.
2: They'd cut off their arms with a machete if they were stuck in the machines. It's difficult to think of a more horrific type of injury. And if an enslaved person didn't want to do this kind of work...
4: The threat and use of violence uh, was ever-present.
2: A formerly enslaved woman named Mrs. Webb described a torture chamber used by her owner. One of his cruelties was to place a disobedient slave standing in a box in which there were nails placed in such a manner that the poor creature was unable to move. He was powerless even to chase the flies or sometimes ants crawling on some parts of his body.
4: Their fate was sealed to a kind of deadly routine,
2: So 1865, slavery is abolished, in the U.S. at least. But in some ways, things really don't change. Because when the FBI began its investigation in the 1940s, it had been some 80 years since slavery was abolished. The sugar industry was now paying their workers. And yet, the conditions weren't a whole lot different from 1865. 1865. J. Edgar Hoover puts down the report, and he decides to do something about it. The FBI investigation actually culminated with the company U.S. Sugar being charged with peonage and conspiracy to violate the right and privilege of citizens to be free from slavery. Conspiracy to commit slavery in the 1940s. The trial never went ahead because of an issue with jury impartiality. It's a long story. But this investigation changed the whole sugar industry. Their practices had been exposed. And this left a void. Who was going to cut the sugar cane? They couldn't carry on as they had been, but the sugar companies found a way around it. Hiring overseas. A plan was hatched. Luckily for the growers, a new labor program was available. It was a program that made it easier to bring in workers from abroad because of labor shortages during World War II. This would eventually morph into what's today known as the H-2A farm worker visa. So in April, 1943, America's sugar growers turned to the islands nearby Florida and began hiring men from the Caribbean to cut the cane. Firstly, the Bahamas, then Jamaica, St. Lucia, Barbados. By the following season, they would be working in the fields.
5: Distinguished guests from the Bahamas, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. The Duke tells New York City reporters how Bahamians are helping on eastern farms. Here come farm workers from the Bahama Islands off the Atlantic coast.
2: In documents from the time, one grower writes that the farmers preferred workers from the Bahamas because the vast difference between the Bahama island labor and domestic is that the labor transported from the Bahama Islands can be deported and sent home if it does not work. If you don't perform well, whatever that means, you're kicked out of the country. And as you know, through getting to know cutters like Victor and Selvin in this series, that's exactly what happened. They were in the U.S. at the mercy of their employers. They knew if they complained, they would be sent back to Jamaica. They weren't American citizens, and it would be a lot harder for them to get to the FBI. So from the 1940s until the 1990s, every year for 50 years, some 20,000 men from the Caribbean, Jamaica in particular, would come to Florida. They'd be transported to sugarcane fields, including those owned by the funholes.
3: And they begin to bring in Jamaicans, thousands and thousands of Jamaicans, to cut the cane. And that's how it begins.
2: It seems like they acknowledged that they would not have been successful had it not been for this program.
3: Absolutely. They wouldn't have been.
2: Carl Hyacin puts it even more dramatically.
5: They would not have existed if it weren't for uh, migrant labor that they got visas and kept under basically slave conditions for years and years and years. It was one of the grimmest labor situations in the whole country
2: When Marie interviewed Alfie and Pepe, she actually asked them about the job of cutting sugar cane, a job that's been called the hardest in the world. You asked them if they had ever actually worked in the fields themselves. What was their answer?
3: Alfie laughed. He said he tried to cut cane at one point, but it was so overwhelming he couldn't last five minutes. That he he just found it so impossible what you had to do. Did he seem to make that
2: connection with what he was demanding of the workers in his own fields?
3: Absolutely not. No, there was no empathy and no sympathy whatsoever. The Fonhuls really believed that they were giving these workers a shot at the middle class, or so they convinced themselves, they believed. This was the way they justified this when they had their huge parties on their yachts and they flew in people from all over the world and they built their elaborate mansions. This was truly a kind of... Colonial narcissistic belief that they were giving these hard-working guys who were mistreated, often injured, would lose fingers, would lose limbs, would not even be able to have lunch because they couldn't leave the fields. They believed they were giving them a shot. Just even reliving it, I'm just still, you can hear I'm just getting more and more aggravated.
2: Yeah, it's... It really bothers you still.
3: Yeah, it does. It does. It just, to see in, in our own country the extraordinary, you would have to say, racist human rights violations. Where were the white workers in the fields? These were black Jamaicans who somehow were invisible to the American legal system.
2: There's this grim motif from the beginning from slavery to the black Americans in the South to the Caribbean men. For hundreds of years, the sugarcane industry in North America almost always relied on the labor of the disenfranchised or unfree. Well, we're telling a story about not just this area of Florida, but the industry, of, of the sugar industry. When I was in Belle Glade, I started talking to people about the court case that this series revolves around and the accusation that the growers systematically underpaid the Caribbean men who came to this area to cut the sugarcane for them. Michael looked at me in disbelief and said, "That's that's what? Why you think we on the bottom? I told you we on the bottom, struggling, breaking our backs.
0: Man, those people don't—they still—they ain't just stealing money, man. They stealing our lives, man.
1: <laughs> that's crazy.
0: Man, them people stealing lives, man." For real, man.
2: In her interview. Marie pressed the Fonhuls more about the conditions the sugarcane cutters lived in.
3: They invited me on their boat, and it was more of the same. Incredibly gracious, saying they had done nothing wrong, and um, then they sailed off.
2: Next time. We're back in the West Palm Beach Courthouse in the 1990s, where some underdog lawyers decided to take on the mighty Hools. Do you consider yourself to be a stubborn person?
3: I prefer determined, I think. I will not be run over easily.
5: So Dave's practice was slipping badly, and it it coincided with
3: Dave's marriage was breaking up.
2: And how exactly their landmark lawsuit went down.
3: And he started to cry. And there was a silence in the courtroom that was so heartbreaking.
2: And outside the courtroom, the drama. The Vanity Fair article had been simmering in the background.
5: Then this whole movie deal hit.
2: That's next time on Big Sugar. Big Sugar is produced by Imagine Audio, Weekday Fun Productions, and Novel for iHeartMedia. The series is hosted by me, Celeste Headley. Big Sugar is produced by Jeff Eisenman at Weekday Fun Productions. It's executive produced by Kara Welker, Nathan Clokey, and Marie Brenner. Story editor and executive producer is Joe Wheeler. The researcher is Nadia Medhi. Production management from Cherie Houston, Frankie Taylor, and Charlotte Wolfe. Our fact checker is Sona Avakian. Field reporting by Amber Amortegi and Peter Hayden. Sound design and mixing by Eli Block, Naomi Clark, and Daniel Kempson. Original music composed by Troy McCubbin at Alloy Tracks. Additional music by Nicholas Alexander. Special thanks to Alec Wilkinson, author of the book Big Sugar, and Stephanie Black, director of the documentary H2 Worker. Big Sugar is based on the Vanity Fair article, In the Kingdom of Big Sugar?, by Marie Brenner.
4: The